If you haven't been with us, what we've been doing during part of the summer is we've been doing a series that's dealing with the life of Elijah. Let me get back to where we're supposed to be. There we go. With the life of Elijah that uh, is going just chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph through his life. And we're coming to a story in 1 Kings chapter 19 that's a challenge. Let me start off with this thought, okay? We believers are supposed to be people who are given to praise and thanksgiving. We're encouraged to do that. That's part of our worship service is to give praise, to give glory. We read in the New Testament, this is the will of God that we give thanks. We read in passages, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And we understand Okay, that we have good reasons to rejoice. When we come together like this in a morning service, we can rejoice. It's, it's rainy out. It's a busy day. There's a, th- plans have changed for some of us. And there's difficulties and challenges. And yet we're able to rejoice for good reasons. The good reasons are we have a Savior who is in control. We have a Savior who has forgiven us of our sins. We have had exchanges in our life where God has taken us from a spot where we were we were ruled by, we were overthrown down by sin and, and got some ungodly habits, and God has given us victory over that. God has blessed you and your families by helping your kids in some situations, by helping you in some situations. We could talk about all kinds of different blessings. The biggest joy that we have is that we know in a hundred years from now we can be with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be in heaven, that all the stuff that we deal with in this earth, it's going to be a forgot, it's going to be a long ago memory and we're going to be with him and things are going to be great and we will be enjoying that glory forever and ever. To know that our sins are forgiven and under the blood of the Lamb, that's enough to rejoice. That's encouraging. And yet we also know that even though we're supposed to be rejoicing, not all believers, including you and me, we're not always upbeat. There are times where the weather affects us. There are times when illness affects us. There are times when we get down, we get discouraged because other people around us have not appreciated us the way we think they should. Or something just, you know, the the car breaks down or the wash machine breaks down or your husband broke down. Okay, one of the things. Things happen. And we have those difficult moments. And I understand that for some people, they're just playing negative people. The story goes about a believer who moved in next door to an old man who was one of the most negative people he ever met. This guy could find, he could find negative and be pessimistic about anything. Walk, neighbor walk up and say, isn't it a beautiful day? Ah, oh, too much sun, sun, sunshine. It's dangerous. can give you skin cancer. You know, it's a rainy day. Ah, oh, too much rain, you know, drowns the crops. Have a wonderful meal together. They had a fabulous meal. You know, didn't you think the meal was really good? Ah, oh, you know. You can't always eat good meals, otherwise you eat too much and get fat. You know, everything was negative. And so this believer made it a goal in his life. He was going to get this man to say something complimentary, something positive. And he tried and tried and tried, and it was coming to the fall season and hunting season. He knew his neighbor hunted. And the believer, he had a dog that was the most fantastic dog. He called it Wonder Dog. This dog could do the incredible things. Great hunting dog. So he invited his neighbor to go duck hunting with him. They went out together. They're sitting in the blind, and as the ducks pass, they shoot. And the believer's, you know, in excitement, he's going to get a positive comment. He says to his dog, fetch. The dog jumps out of the blind and runs across the water. I mean, it doesn't go down in the water. It can run across the water. The dog gets the ducks, come back, and the believer looks at the old man and says, so what do you think of that? Like, I got you now. you got to say something positive. The old negative man just looked at the dog, looked at the dog, and he says, 
A dog that can't swim ain't worth much, is it? You know, some people just, they're negative. They'll find something negative in all things. Well, we as believers sometimes, we get negative over certain things that happen to us. You have Moses. Moses got really down on himself. It was just the, the people not responding, the pressures of, of all of a sudden we get in this area and he can't drink this water and, and all of a sudden there's this challenge and this challenge. And Moses even says, this is too heavy, kill me. He had a thought of, I want my life to end. We can go into David's life. Now David's writing in this psalm, he's talking about his bones waxing old, that he'd lost all joy, that he was just seriously, seriously discouraged. Now his was because of guilt. Guilt over sin that he had done. That can depress people. You have the situation where, where there's the case where Jeremiah is struggling. Jeremiah has preached the word, and the king has told him, if you tell me the truth, I'll listen to you. And every time he does, tells the king the truth, it gets worse. The king throws him in a pit. He gets jailed. Everything's going problem. And he makes the comment to God, my pain is perpetual, my wound incurable. Will you be a liar? Will you be a liar to me? He's really down in the dumps. He's down in the pits. He's mis- and then he would come to 1 Kings 19, Elijah. Elijah in chapter 19, verse 4, says these words at the very end. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. This guy comes to a point where he wants to die. He wants to end his life. We look at these individuals and we realize that you know, even godly believers can have their down moments. Elijah, this, this is why I entitled it, Sure Case of the Blues. He's got the blues, and they're bad. How did he get there? What happened that led him to this point where he wants to end his life? What, what, what all transpired? Now, if we go through the story, there's a lot of difficulties and challenges as you go through. Let's, let's just kind of go through with this form of an outline. The condition of Israel is bad. The condition is such that Ahab and Jezebel, as we talked about in the series, they're king and queen. They are the most wicked of kings and queens of the Old Testament. He outdid everybody else for evil. They have established a new state religion. No longer are they following Jehovah, the Ten Commandments. They are worshiping Baal. The prophets of Jehovah have been persecuted. They've been pressed out of the land. And so the entire regime is all about Baal worship. In Jezebel, she is prophetess of Baal. Her dad, who she, who, who's back in a distant land. He is the high priest of Baal. So she is just Baal, 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 this false worship and it's really, really bad. Because of it being so bad, God had led Elijah to come and challenge the king and the queen and to consider Jehovah being the God, that he's the true God. And there was a series of events including three and a half years of no rain that God withheld to try to show that he was in control. And at the end of the three and a half years there's this, this encounter where Elijah comes to the king and says, let's have a contest. Let's prove who is the real God. Will the real God please stand up? And the contest is real simple. The contest is that they're going to make sacrifices and when they make the sacrifices, what they're going to do is they're going to prepare the altar, put the animal on it and nobody's supposed to put any lighter fluid on it. Nobody's supposed to put any match to it. They're supposed to stand back and pray. All the prophets of Baal can pray together and pray for lightning or fire to come down from heaven. And then Elijah will do the same thing, pray for fire. And whichever god or gods sends the fire, that's going to be the real god. Well, everybody agrees. Baal, I'm sorry, uh, Ahab agrees. The prophets of Baal agree. They're going to do this contest. 
And so they have it set. That's chapter 18. Chapter 18, they do the contest, and the people gather there. And when the entire nation is gathered, watching, looking up the hill at the prophets of Baal and at, at Elijah preparing their altars, Elijah turns to all the congregation down below, and he says, how long will you halt or limp between two opinions? If Jehovah be God, serve him. If Baal, then serve him. In other words, get off the fence. Come on. Let's make up our minds. And so the contest takes place. You, we read about it. We studied it. That what they do is they, they have their all-day-long session. Elijah lets the prophets of Baal pray and pray and pray. And then when it's all done, toward dusk, he builds his altar. He puts his sacrifice there. And then he waterlogs everything with the rarity of what water's around. He just soaks and saturates it. So there's no way it could burn if he wanted to light it. And everybody knows this is no hoax, no trick. And then he prays. And we read in chapter 18 how he prays a simple prayer and God answers with fire from heaven. That takes the sacrifice, takes up all the wood, takes up the stones, and all the water all the way around, everything is consumed. I mean, it is quite the fire. It's amazing. And it's a thrilling moment. In fact, the people are changed. Look at chapter 18. This is where we left off a couple weeks ago. In chapter 18, look down what the people's response. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. They said, the Lord, or Jehovah, he is God, the Je Jehovah, or Yahweh, he is God. And Elijah said unto them, take away the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. They took them. Elijah brought them down to the brook that was at the bottom of this mountain and slew them there. And so this tremendous revival takes place. That which Elijah has been praying about for the last three and a half plus years, it's finally occurred, the people are motivated to worship Jehovah. And he says to the king, who's been there for the whole day, he says, you better get home. Rain is a coming. The rain that you haven't seen for three and a half years are going to get stuck in the mud unless you get home. God is on the move. And then right after that, what happens is you're going to have the collapse. Right after that, you come to chapter 19 where everything falls apart. The revival falls apart because the man of God falls apart. The Christian falls apart. And what he does is he ends up running away from the revival. He comes to a point where he wants to die. He gets into the wilderness in chapter 19, and he has this ongoing argument with God. And that God just basically is just having to deal with him. How did he get to that point? How did he get to the point where he wants to die, that he's arguing with God and really angry with God? Well, immediately after the contest had taken place, he started praying for the rain to come back. And he goes up on the mountain... And he prays that the rain would come back. As the rain starts coming, he says to his prophet, and he says to him, and this is an interesting, you've got to catch some of this at the end of chapter, chapter 18. He says to, to, the, to his uh, worker in verse 44, it came to pass at the seventh time that he prayed, that he said, Behold, there arises a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And Elijah says to the man, Go up, say unto King Ahab, Prepare your chariot, get thee down, the rain stops you not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode to the city. He went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins. In other words, he pulled up his long, his long robe and tucked it into his waistcoat and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. In other words, he becomes the bodyguard. He's the lead. He's leading this chariot pulled by horses all the way to Jezreel. Now, just to put this all in perspective, this is about 25 miles that he is out running the horses. Okay? How do you do that? Some of you who run the marathons, 
You, you do fabulous. I admire you. That's why I stand on the sidelines and go, 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 because I'm not out there. Okay? And, you're, and it's amazing what you can do when you run those 20-plus miles in the marathons, but out running a horse at the same time that's pulling a chariot. The reason that it happens is down in the end of verse 46. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He girded up his loins and ran before him. So God is helping him to do this phenomenal feat. And so think about it. Think about what an amazing day he's had. He's called fire down from heaven. He's prayed for rain that hasn't shown up in three and a half years, and it shows up that day. I wish he were here to pray that it wouldn't rain. But he's praying for that rain, and it comes. He outruns a chariot, serves as... He's leading the king back to the city. He's bold. He's brave. We've got Baal on the run. This is phenomenal. This is exciting. But he forgot about somebody. It's Jezebel. Jezebel, who doesn't play into any of the contest up to this point, she must have been back at the palace ruling things, she hears that her prophets have been killed. Her husband comes in and relays the story, and she puts him in his place. Okay? What she does is she is not letting go of control. She is not letting go of the worship of her gods. And so what she does, chapter 19, she sends a message, not of congratulations to Elijah. You know, congratulations, you beat me in the election. She doesn't do that. She doesn't concede. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of those prophets by tomorrow about this very same time. She sends an, a death threat to him. And she's telling him, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to have you slain. Elijah, with all of his bravado, he's stunned. He is, he is shocked. And the next verse, what we read is, when he saw the note, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. Now remember, he's in the northern nation. Judah's the southern nation. What he does is he goes on a trip of 130 miles. He bails on the revival. He runs away. And then when he runs away, it says he gets down there and then he leaves his servant there at Beersheba. And he himself went another day journey into the wilderness. And so he travels some more. And then, then, then he comes to a point in the wilderness that he comes to a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. It is now, it is, an, it is enough. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. I'm not better than my father's. And he lay and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, then an angel touched him and said, hey, wake up, you need to, you need to eat. And then he ends up taking another trip that he travels a little bit further into the wilderness and there he has an argument with God. And in all this, God is very gracious with this man who has just bailed on the revival, who has just put everything at jeopardy. It's amazing what God does with him and how God deals with him, which we'll look at next week. But what do we have? Here's, here's what I want to just focus on this point. What was happening in his life that contributed to him coming to the point where he was so discouraged and so depressed he was ready to quit? What was it that contributed to his breakdown? What was it that caused him to have this collapse of faith, this monumental, untimely collapse of leadership? What was it that caused him to desert his family and the faith? What was it that, that what, what's going on in your life? There's a lot of contributing factors that contribute to people who get depressed, who get discouraged. 
We could, we could just start listening, listing some of the things and what are some of the symptoms. The symptoms are real clear. This man isn't thinking clearly. And this is typical of somebody who is very discouraged, somebody who is getting to the point of depression. They don't think clearly. Let me, let me pose what, what, I have, what I have in mind here. He gets a note from Jezebel that says, I want to kill you. And he flees for his life. But then when he gets to where he's going, what does he want to do? I want to die. Well, that makes no sense. You run away to get away from death, but then you want to die. There's just, it makes no sense. He's not thinking clearly. Okay? He's saying in chapter 10, or I'm sorry, in verse 10 and 14, look what he says. They seek my life. The they is Ahab and Jezebel is his reference. Wait a minute, he just spent the whole day with Ahab. He led his chariot as a bodyguard back to Jezreel. Ahab did nothing to him. The they is actually Jezebel, but because of his discouragement, all of a sudden he got much bigger. All of a sudden, everybody is against me. Oh, you know, they all. He's come to a point where he's not thinking clearly. He comes to a point where he leaves his responsibilities. The people who need him at this moment, he bails. They have just followed his leadership. They have just let him be king for the day. What do we do? What do we do with the prophets? Kill them all. They kill 850 prophets. They are going to do whatever he says, whatever he directs, and he gets depressed and he leaves them without leadership at this moment. At the most critical moment of providing spiritual leadership, he's gone. And not only does he just go to his house and close the door, he leaves the state. He leaves the country. And not only does he leave the country, but he ends up in a wilderness where he can't get any text. There's no cell phone service where he ends up at. He has totally, totally left everything, and he's angry. When you read in verses 10 and 14, when God comes and meets him in the wilderness, he makes this comment. Look at verse 10, and let me see if I can read it with a little bit of the feeling. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They throw down your altars. They slay your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God deals, talks to him, and says, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's going on, what's going on? And he repeats the same thing in verse 14. He doesn't let up. He is so angry that he repeats the same argument again. And he keeps on talking about me, what I have done, and everything that has happened. How I have, have done so much for you. And this is what you let happen to me. We did all of this work. Maybe, maybe I can put myself in this mood back in March. We labored so hard to put together a missions conference, and you let it snow. Surprise, it snowed in March. <laughs> and we get upset with the Lord. How could you deal with me this way? I remember, I remember my most, most poignant moment of being angry with the Lord. It was a couple of years ago when we got the call that, that uh, Becky had cancer and then there was a tumor that showed up in her jaw. And I remember in my office saying, I have tried to serve you for years and you let this happen to my kid? Does that ever happen to us? I guess I'm the only, only one in this room. No. Do we ever get to those moments where we don't think clearly, where we're angry, where we're acting irresponsibly, and then we withdraw from others? He leaves everybody who was relying upon him, and he leaves the person who could serve him. He left there his servant. He isolated himself. 
He went farther away from other people. He goes into the wilderness, and the folk who could help him, the folk that he could help, he's done. He's gone. They're nowhere in sight. And then he's thinking suicidal. These are all of his symptoms. And by the way, these are very symptomatic of other individuals like you or others you know that sometimes get to these moments and you say, you know, how bad can it get? Well, his, he comes to suicidal thinking. Can it happen to believers? Ask Moses. We read already that Moses thought this way. Ask Jeremiah. Jeremiah thought this way. Ask Elijah. He felt this way this moment. That it got so bad. By the way, I'm going to add this. There's another symptom that shows up. It says, and uh, jump down in verse 19, it, or, or verse 8. He, um, the, the angel comes to him out of the juniper tree. We read about in verse 6 that the angel wakes him up and says, you've got to eat. You've got to eat. Okay? And uh, then in verse 8, he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength that, of that meat, that food, 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb. If I understand my Bible geography right, he travels another 200 miles from where he's at, roughly. And that 200 miles, he does it in 40 days. That's a long time traveling in, in Bible record at this point. That's five miles a day. That's indicative that he is not moving quick. You ever notice somebody who's discouraged? You ever notice yourself when you're discouraged? Usually, your posture changes even. Getting out of bed is a chore. Okay? It's difficult to just get up and get going. Well, that's where this guy, these are all of his symptoms. Now, what I wanted to do is to focus in on this. How did he get, what was it that contributed to him? What were the weaknesses, the temptations, the difficulties he was facing that he didn't handle well? Okay, this is kind of like the chicken and the egg. Which comes first? The symptoms or the causes, and yet they work together. And so right here, let me just share with you some of the dangerous um, experiences that he had that he didn't handle right, that he didn't do what he should have done that led to him getting worse and worse and to the point where he wanted to commit suicide. They go this way. One of the contributing factors was fatigue. He was seriously tired extremely physically stretched. I know that because he had an all-day contest in the hot sun. He's out there. Some of you, do you notice the last week when it was so hot? Going outside doesn't wear you down. Even if you're on vacation, you're walking. After a while, you get wore down. The heat can kind of take it out of you. Well, he's there on a hot day doing this contest. He built the altar, it says, and he did the slaughtering of the sacrifice. So he was busy all day long watching those guys at the top of that mountain, and then he makes the sacrifice, builds it. Then he has you know, the extended prayer time after the contest, after the fire comes down. Then he goes on the mountain and prays multiple times for the rain to come back. Then he runs ahead of the chariot 20-some miles. Then he leads the chariot, outruns the horses. Then he makes the trip of 130 miles from Jezreel down to Beersheba. And then beyond that, he travels into the wilderness another 200 miles He's tuckered out. He's physically exhausted. You and I, if we travel 400 miles in a day, okay, in a car, we're tired. He's doing this probably on foot. Maybe, maybe it's better. Maybe he's on donkey. <laughs> okay. He's wore out. In fact, you want to see where he's, he's wore out, how bad it is? Go down to verse 7. He lay and slept underneath a juniper tree. An angel touches him and says, Arise and eat. He looked Behold, there's a cake baking on the coals and a cruise of water. He did eat and drink, and then what's he do? 
What does the passage say he does again? He goes back to sleep. The angel of the Lord came again the second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat. He's so tired that after he slept for the night, what does he do? He sleeps for the day. He's physically exhausted. And he's not only physically tired, what else is he? He's hungry. Now, none of you would do this. But do you know people who get hangry when they're hungry? Okay, stop looking at each other, okay? <laughs> these moments, these put us in, sometimes we're in these off moments because we're physically fatigued. That's a dangerous moment. Dangerous moment, his failure. Failure to achieve his goal. You set the goals, I set the goals, and when they don't succeed, we get down on ourselves or on others. Failure to go. He is all about revival. He is all about turning people back to the Lord. The people turned back to the Lord as a whole, but he didn't get the hearts of the leadership. The leadership, like Ahab, he didn't get Ahab's heart in his revival. Now, Ahab does, is listening to him, listening to his counsel, listening to his advice, letting him lead the chariot. But he doesn't listen to, a, to, to Elijah enough that when he walks into the door of the house and tells his wife what has happened, that he's going to be the man of the house. He doesn't do that. Jezebel is still in charge. Jezebel is going to tell Ahab what we're going to do. Jezebel sends the threat. For all the work that Elijah has done, he hasn't cut off the head of the snake. And that threatens the revival. That's a discouraging moment. This is a moment she's, she's not... Well, by the way, what's ironic here? She says, so let the gods do to me also if I don't kill you by morning's end. They've just proven that her gods are useless. But she hasn't budged one bit. She is still antagonistic, atheistic, against Jehovah gospel. For all that Elijah has done, it's not done even a pinprick in this woman's heart. That's discouraging. And then on top of it, now he's left the revival and you know, think rationally with me for a moment. We didn't mention this earlier. If, if Jezebel really wanted to kill him, what would she have sent instead of a note? An assassin. I mean, seriously. You know, those of you who have been robbed, did you get a note ahead of time saying, we're coming at such and such a time? That doesn't happen, right? She's going to take him out. She doesn't send a note. Why'd she send a note? She wasn't going to take him out. She wasn't going to kill him. She was doing what? Scaring him. Intimidating him. Because if she killed him, he would become a martyr for the cause. But if she can get him to quit and to bail, she's, she's been more effective. So now, do you think that in some of this fleeing, it's clicking with him? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I really blew it. Failure. Guilt. Okay, let me give you something else that can happen here. That, that makes us for a weak moment. How about fear? How about fear at this moment? By the way, are we more inclined to be fearful when we're tired, worn out? Do the boogeymen become more real when we're really exhausted? Do your kids get more scared when they're really tired? Okay, here's, here's fears. Let me, let me remind you. In the past, when God said, go talk to Ahab, he had no qualms in chapter 17 to walk up to that king and that queen and to announce, you have sinned. You have sinned. 
When all of a sudden, after the drought of that three years, God says, go meet with Ahab. He tells Obadiah, Ahab's general, chief of staff, says, I'm going to meet with him. And Obadiah says, no, you won't. You'll, 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 you'll run away, and I'll be in trouble by setting up a meeting, and you won't be there. And Ahab has, I'm sorry, Elijah says, no, I'll stay right here. You go get him and tell him I'm meeting with him. Ahab approaches him at the meeting place and says, are you the one that troubles Israel? You know, mad now because you have caused it not to rain for three years. What's Elijah's response? I'm not the one who troubled Israel. You are. That's a bold prophet speaking to the king. He has no, no evidence of fear or cowardice except for now. Now all of a sudden the fear has stricken him. The fear that they seek my life and he is running away. In fact, he's exaggerating the situation that they are seeking after me. It's Jezebel. Ahab was with him all day. Ahab, if he wanted him dead, could have run him over with a chariot. Could have had guards do something. We often fear potential problems more than we do the realities. You and I need to be careful. When we are starting to let the threats become exaggerated, we fear. We fear possible bad news. We fear possible confrontations. We fear possible failure. And it can, it can stymie us, it can put us in the worst of moods and, and paralyze us. He's dealing with fear. Doesn't deal with it right. Okay, fault finding, he's given to this. It's a temptation and he succumbs to it totally. He becomes very critical of God. Highly critical of God. I've done all this, I've done all this, and I, even I only, and he's very critical of the other people. Nobody is serving God the way that I'm serving God. I've been very jealous. And so here he is, really, really, really upset with God and the other people. And he hangs on to this. Chapter, chapter 19, verses 10, verses 14. He hangs on to it. And God has to tell him in later in the conversation, which we'll develop next week, he says, you are not the only one here. But isn't it interesting that when you and I feel those moments where we're really getting pressure and we really feel like we're ready to give up, nobody has it as bad as I do. Nobody works as hard as I work. Nobody has the spouse that I have. Nobody has kids that don't listen but me. Nobody has that boss. Nobody has that unloving church family. And we, we just, it just all of a sudden compounds and fault-finding. And then he comes to a point where he's not only critical of others, he's critical of himself. I am not as good as my father's. He comes to that point. I want to die. I'm not as good as other people. I'm not as good as the prophets that have gone before me. And I, again, I've told you this in the past. I've put in my Bible, who said you had to be? But he is really beating himself up. It's dangerous to start comparing yourself with other people. Let's make another observation here. That he severs his friendships. This was a temptation. He succumbs to it. That he severed the friendships. He left all the people who needed him. And he leaves his servant who could help him. And he just isolates himself. Here, you know, this, he shouldn't have done this. He should have stopped this. He shouldn't have had gone off by himself and just be in his own little self-pity party all by himself, you know, that, that, he, that he just all of a sudden is just feeding and feeding and feeding. Let me give you something else that he does. He, speeds this, uh, the, he feeds this spirit of self-pity. This woe is me. 
That idea, I'm not as good as my father's. I, even I only. This is the exact same thing. The identical same thing that happens with Mary and Martha. Do you remember when they're in the meal, preparing the meal? That Martha comes barging into the Lord and says, Tell my sister that she ought to come back. And by the way, she has left me. She, in other words, Mary was serving with her before. But then Mary said, okay, we've done enough, and I'm going to go out and sit at the feet of Jesus. Tell her that she needs to come in here. This overworked, this overbusy Martha is really upset that she is the only one who is serving Jesus and who has done anything for Jesus. And she's mad at Jesus, she's mad at Mary, and probably mad at all these men who showed up at her door to want to eat. It happens. We just compound this, this feeling sorry for ourselves. Can we add something else here? He's tempted to, and he gives in to forgetting God. I want to remind you about something in the characteristic of this man's life. Do you remember he goes to the king, chapter 16. Is that the right chapter I want to get to? It happens, 17. 17 verse 1. That the Lord tells him to go and speak to the king. So he goes to speak to the king. After he speaks to the king, the Lord tells him to go to Kareth. And he goes to the the brook of Kareth. There he stays. There the birds bring him the food. The water dries up and he doesn't move until the Lord tells him to go to Zarephath. He goes to Zarephath. And when he gets there, the woman who's going to take care of him is a widow. And he stays there, stays with her. And God provides for him. And he doesn't leave until the Lord tells him it's time to move from Zarephath. And I want you to go from Zarephath. And I want you to meet with King Ahab and confront him. He goes to meet with King Ahab. Then he goes and has a contest. According to what we studied already in chapter 18, he does the contest at the bidding of the Lord. He does everything just like the Lord has said. This is a guy who doesn't move without God telling him green light. Otherwise, everything is a red light. He doesn't, take, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, presume upon himself to make movement until now. At this moment, this man who is the example in the New Testament of prayer, of all the Old Testament saints, he's the one that James picks. There is no prayer made. He doesn't pray in the middle of this death threat. He moves immediately without waiting for God to give him direction. He forgets God. In the moment of the crisis, he is on the run. It is easy for any of us to forget God when all of a sudden a crisis hits us this week. A bill that we weren't expecting. A sickness and an illness that we didn't think was on the horizon. It's easy to all of a sudden panic and not pray. This is what happens to him. And as a result, he gives in to it, and it just, with all these other things, it compounds, and he's sliding down the hill of despair because he's not stopping it. Let me give you something else. He's focusing on the instant and the, uh, and the momentous, the miraculous. Everything that he has done up to this point is miracles. Miracle of the rain being held back. The miracle of the rain coming after three years. The miracle of the ravens coming and feeding him. The miracle of the cruise of oil just perpetually keep on filling. The miracle of raising the boy from the dead. The miracle of the fire coming from heaven. The miracle of the answered prayer. And all of a sudden with all these miracles, with the threat of Jezebel, there is no miracle. And it's like, God, what are you doing? We're so used to you doing it my way, doing it this way. And I want the phenomenal and the exciting. It's almost like you and me here this morning. 
Lord, you could have held off the rain and could have proved the weatherman wrong. And it's like, God, we would have been so excited if you had done that. That we almost say, that's the only way that God can work if God does the miraculous, the momentous, the magnificent. Can God work in the mundane? Can God work in the ordinary? By the way, I think that's a huge lesson. We'll, we'll talk about more. Remember when God comes to speak with him in the cave and there's the fire. There's the wind. And it says... God was not in them, but God was in the still, small voice. It's almost like some of us as believers, we have to have something dynamic and dramatic to keep our faith going. You better give me some real pizzazz on Sunday so that I really got, you know, we need, we need these high energy drinks spiritually. As opposed to just that walking with the Lord day by day. Day by day. So this fella, all of a sudden, God has to deal with him in a, in a phenomenal way. Let me, let me point out this. Godly believers like you do get discouraged at times. You're not unique. Some of you can feel the burnout. Some of you can feel the pressure. Some of you know what that's like. You and I need to be careful. Remember, this is a man subject to like passions as we are. He experiences what we did. So got to beware. Beware of those vulnerable moments, and we've given you a list of them. Now, these are moments you've got to be very, very careful about. Especially they'll hit you after those mountaintop experiences. After every mountain, there's a valley. Be cautious, be careful, be ready, don't be foolish. What you need to do is prevent the discouragement that comes into your life from taking over. You need to resist it. Now, how do you do that? What do you do? I'll just give you some comments here. And again, we'll talk about more later. You pray instead of panicking. When you find yourself in these moments, you pray. You pray, you pray. You don't respond by, by going off the deep end. You don't respond by running away. You wait upon the Lord. You trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. You pray. You pray. You pray. Don't panic. Turn to prayer. Let me give you another thought here. Okay? rest. Instead of running, 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 understand that the, when, these, when these are vulnerable moments, you need a break or you will break. It is a biblical concept that there is one day in seven that we do something different to refresh, to rest, to re-energize our, our spiritual, physical, social, emotional batteries. You say, you say wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm just so busy for the Lord. There is nothing in the Bible that says it is biblical never to take a break. In fact, it's just the opposite. You need, I need, we need to understand that we need to be resting and eating and sleeping, getting to make sure our bodies are taken care of properly. That's a spiritual aspect, folk, that we underestimate because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have, there's a stewardship of taking care of your body. Let me give you another thought here. Okay, Cleave to instead of leaving those who can help you. Cleave to instead of leaving those who can help you. Friends, church, those who labor with you, those who love you. 
not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We are seeing a day where there is more pressure. There is more difficulty. Um, I don't think I'm exaggerating it, but you can get depressed listening to the news. True? If you listen to talk radio for any length of time, you can feel suicidal. Okay? It can just really wear on you, can it not? Can some of the foolishness that is taking place cause you to become very angry? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Okay? There are moments that you and I need to say, now, wait a minute. What we need to do is we need to cleave to that which can help us. Instead of being addicted to that which frustrates us, are there moments we should probably, let's stop talking about that stuff and let's start talking about something that will build my soul. Okay? And here I am. I'm a talk radio junkie. You know, the pot calling the kettle black. Here I am. I love politics. I don't love all politicians. Okay? I love politics. But there's got to be moments that just says, you've got to step away. You've got to step away and step more towards other things that are better filling our spirit and our soul. Let me give you another thought here. Rejoice over what's being accomplished rather than regretting what's not happened yet. Rejoice over what's being accomplished. But the Bible talks about, my brother encountered all joy when he fell into diverse temptations. You know, here's this guy that's so overwhelmed by potential situations that he's forgotten all the blessings. And he runs in fear because he's forgotten all the blessings. He, he disassociates because he's forgot all the blessings. He forgot about all the good things that God has done. All the phenomenal things. I guess maybe we need to have an attitude check. We need to do the Thomas Edison thing. That after several years, Thomas Edison was working on the experiment of trying to develop the alkaline battery. Ten years in his factory working on this. There's no money coming in. It's just going out, spending all on the chemicals and test after test after test. And so his factory was filled with all kinds of chemicals before they came to the point of discovering the battery and how it could work that we appreciate so very much. And one night in December of that, of that period of time and when he was just doing experiments only in 1914, all of a sudden his warehouse started on fire. With all the chemicals, it was a huge fire. Eight different fire companies from around that region came, which is a big fire in those days. And Edison's son was so worried about his dad. Dad's going to be there. Crowds are gathering. Dad has got to be really, really discouraged. Poor dad. You know, he's worked these 10 years. It's not, and nothing's happening. I've got to find dad to find out where he's at. And he found his dad in the crowd, at the front line of the crowd, looking at the fire, eyes wide open. And he's thinking, oh, poor dad. He looks shell-shocked. And so the boy runs up and Thomas Edison turns to his son. He makes this comment that is a famous comment. He says, go get your mother and all her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again in their lives. (laughs) Perspective. Perspective that you and I stop living with regrets and rejoice in what has been accomplished. Be content with. Not critical of who you are or what you've done. Now, what I mean by that is I have to remember I am still a work in progress. I am still a, his poema, his masterpiece, but I'm not completed until the day of redemption. None of us are. News, newsflash, none of us have become what God wants us to be totally. God is still dealing with us. God is still shaving off some of those rough edges. And we've got to be thankful for the work of God that is happening without beating ourselves up. 
and being down on ourselves and saying, I am not as good as so-and-so. We are not wise if we compare ourselves amongst ourselves. We're not wise. Okay? It's what am I before the Lord? What are you doing in my heart? Where can I grow? I grow at a different pace than some of you. I grow a whole lot slower. But God is still working in me. And thank God that he still works in our hearts. Can I give you this other thought? Stop the slide. Stop the slide into discouragement. Stop sulking. It's amazing to me that Elijah is so determined to be miserable. And as time has gone by, I think that is almost a truism. Some people who get discouraged and depressed, they like it. They like it because it removes responsibility. They can be mad at other people. They can give excuses for not changing. You got to stop it. You got to stop it. We're all tempted in these areas. We all battle in these areas, but it doesn't mean we need to give in to it. It doesn't mean we need to stay in it. We need to stop the sulking. You say, well, what if I'm there? What if I'm already in those points? What if I'm already at that, in the midst of depression? What, if, what, what do I do if I have a family member? Where do we, you know, where do we go from here? Well, let me do a promo. <laughs> Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the short case or a cure for the case of depression. What did God deal with Elijah to get him out of the pits of despair? God, medically, psychologically, what he does in this passage is phenomenal for every counselor to get their hands on. How God deals with the broken prophet. But can I end with this thought this morning about stopping the sulking? There's a story in 1 Samuel chapter 30. That it talks about David at one of his lowest moments. David is extremely distressed. He's got a lot of pressure going on in his life. And unlike Elijah, he's going he's to deal with it the right way. But it's a bad moment. He has the king, his father-in-law, after him trying to kill him. Forced him out of the land of Israel. He's living on the border. He's been playing both sides. He's been saying to the Philistines, I'm with you, but behind the scenes he's been against them and defeating them in battle and leaving no prisoners and no, leaving nobody alive to tell the Philistines what he's really doing. To the Jews, he's a, he's a, a war criminal. He's a traitor. But he really is helping them out behind the scenes. But he's got to live this double life for a period of time. He's got 500 mighty warriors with him. They're living in a small village town, a mountainous town called Ziklag. While they are away beating the Philistines in a clandestine way, there's some marauders who came through and attacked their village of Ziklag. David comes home and everything's been plundered. All of their foods, all of their riches, their homes... Their kids are taken, their wives are taken, and his 500 mighty men turn on him. And they say, David, how could you do this? How could you lead us this way? And they're ready to kill David. David has a moment in chapter 30 where he walks out into a field, and it says David is greatly distressed, but then he encouraged himself in the Lord. It says that basically, he and God moment. He has this unique moment, and he gets himself encouraged despite all the bad things going on. What did he do? 
This text doesn't say exactly what he did, but there's another text that might give us a hint into it. There's another text when he was at a very low moment, and it was a very low moment due to his own personal sin, where he talks about how his bones waxed old within him and how he was so broken he couldn't sleep at night. Another moment of depression for him. And he makes a comment in this passage that many of you know, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me. He says, with your free spirit. Then he makes two other comments that give us an insight into how David probably encouraged himself in the Lord back at Ziklag and how he encouraged himself in the Lord after his sin with Bathsheba. What did he do? Two thoughts. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. What he does to stop the sulking is he repents. Anything in my life that is not pleasing to you, God, I repent of. Deliver me. Forgive me of that anger. Forgive me of that bitterness. Forgive me of that lie. Forgive me of that cheating. Forgive me of that disobedience. Forgive me of that wrong attitude. God, forgive me. Pure and pointed and no excuse, repentance, confession. That's what's necessary to stop the sulking, is making sure you're right with God. Then he does something right after that. Open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. To stop the decline, he gets into rejoicing in song. He starts singing unto the Lord. He starts giving praise unto the Lord. Do I have a pianist? Okay, thank you. Okay. He's going to go and make a comment of, I need to change my thinking. Now, I can't do your repentance for you, but you can do that right now. If there needs to be repentance, you can do that. In fact, if you're here this morning, you say, you talked at the beginning about having the opportunity to rejoice, but I don't know my sins are forgiven. Staff is headed for this door. There are some men, there are some ladies who are willing to talk with you in private down in one of these hallway rooms. They'll show you from the Bible how to make sure that that forgiveness is available. If when we sing in a moment, as we sing unto the Lord, you're welcome to get up and go there. Make sure there's repentance. I can't do that for you, but I can rejoice with you to sing about the goodness of God in the middle of our difficulties, in the middle of things that don't go right the way we think, you're good to me. You're always good to me. That we don't forget the Lord our God.